Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. After three years of draconian lockdown measures, the patience of the people in the People's Republic of China is wearing thin. show of defiance against China's leadership. Police drag away protesters in the country's biggest city, Shanghai. They're calling for President Xi Jinping to step down and lockdowns to be lifted. Protests, the largest since Tiananmen Square in 1989, have broken out across the country triggering a crackdown by authorities. Protests against the government's severe COVID restrictions spread to major cities across China over the weekend. Videos on social media that managed to evade China's censors suggested the protesters clashed with police in Nanjing in the east, Guangzhou in the south, Beijing and at least five other cities. China's COVID policies have taken their toll on society. And here we are nine months into, you know, Omicron and nine months into the wave that kind of took everyone else down and China is still grinding it out and fighting it. People very unhappy. That's Jonathan Anderson, an economist at the Emerging Advisors Group. He also worked for the International Monetary Fund, where he served as a resident representative for China. And those zero COVID policies that are causing widespread protests have not only affected the society, they've also affected China's economy. We got economic data out of China this morning that points to this broad-based slowdown. GDP growing at the slowest pace since 2020. We're talking about data on factory output, investment, consumer spending, real estate. That follows the the COVID outbreaks, the lockdowns. And it is these stop-and-go policies that just haven't allowed China to get the momentum going towards recovery. There is this concern that China is also going to get into some sort of hard landing or hard recession, which could have massive spillover effects globally. China used to be the engine of the world economy. At the turn of the century, China's economy grew consistently at 10% a year. Its gross domestic product went from $360 billion in 1990 to $17.7 trillion in 2021. Chinese history for the past 30 years has been a story of economic growth. There's never really been an economic revolution quite like China's. It is the world's second largest economy, just behind the United States. Most populous country in the world also enjoying the most rapid economic growth in history. An industrial revolution is far more rapid than in Britain or America, for example. What the rest of the world produced, China consumed. It led demand for everything from cement and copper to fuel and technology. What it took Europe 150 years to do in the Industrial Revolution, China has done in 30 years. But now, growth is slowing. Already back in the second half of the 2010s, coming into the pandemic era, China had already slowed a lot, right? China was growing on the earth perhaps 3%, 3.5%. Still growing, but, you know, much, much lower growth than it had experienced in the 90s and the 2000s. So in this show, with the help of John... We're going to find out what's going on in China, why growth is slowing, and whether or not it can recover to help prevent a wider global economic slowdown. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download.
The protests in China over the last weekend aren't new. I live in Shanghai and, you know, was there for the eight, ten week lockdown that we had back in March and April and early May. We were you know, literally stuck in our apartment for uh, two months and, and more as you, know, you could only go outside uh, once a day to do a PCR test and to, you know, get some food delivery at the main gate, right? There were plenty of residential compounds where you had ongoing battles with police and battles with health volunteers and, you know, small-scale riots in individual neighborhoods. The draconian measures that have been in place since the COVID outbreak are still there and they've wreaked social and economic havoc. The services uh, economy and especially things like travel and tourism and catering and entertainment have been pretty decimated, right? If you look, for example, at rail and plane travel domestically in China, they're down, oh, let's say two thirds or three quarters from pre-COVID peaks and are just stuck. Uh, obviously, this has had a huge effect on the economy and one that uh, I, I think it's safe to say is significantly bigger than what the official GDP numbers would say. The International Monetary Fund recently cut its forecast for China's growth to 3.2% this year, representing a sharp slowdown from 8.1% in 2021. China's putting, if you will, a brave face on this, trying to moderate uh, the visible impact. But if you look at what's happening on the ground, it's very clear that, you know, there's a sizable chunk of the economy that is really struggling. A China under economic strain is a relatively new phenomenon for the rest of the world. Developed and developing countries alike have grown used to Beijing's seemingly insatiable appetite for their products. But that's changing as the economy slows. One of the main areas of concern for China has been the housing market, which for the last three decades has been the pillar of China's economy. The property market is in pretty serious trouble. Uh, you know, housing specifically took a real gut punch. Sales are down, prices are down, not just compared to earlier this year, but compared to last year. Over the course of the last 12 months, uh, you've seen a big drop in the property market. Property prices are falling. Sales and construction activity have fallen off very significantly, continue on a downdraft as we, as we speak. The issue is that China works almost exclusively on a pre-sale basis. So, as soon as a developer breaks ground on a project, they're allowed to start selling units, which can be around two years before they're built. This is sort of standard for the course. So, you know, you collect money well in advance and, you know, that's a, and that's used to fund, of course, future construction. But it, as usually happens in, in these situations, developers are essentially paying for the last project with pre-sales from the latest project that they've gotten, which all works very well until you reach a big uh, liquidity crisis, right? Which is what's happened over the past year. Uh, sales have dropped off a lot. Uh, there's been a big pullback on funding for developers and a, a lot of major names have been caught off guard, right? They're facing a liquidity crunch. In October, home sales by floor area in Shanghai fell 35% in annual terms due to the liquidity crunch, according to a survey by China Index Academy. As that happens, of course, you have to stop construction on projects currently underway, construction of projects which have already been pre-sold, right? And so you, as, as someone who's bought a, a flat in this project, suddenly are faced with the, the, the reality that you've already taken a mortgage, you know, you're 
paying uh, monthly installments on your, your liabilities, but the developer is no longer building, right? Uh, and no longer completing the project because they've run out of cash along the way because of the, again, the very poor market conditions. Which has triggered further dissension among a usually compliant public, a large proportion of which had their savings tied up in property. A big chunk of, of what households earn and is not spent on non-durable goods doesn't go into bank accounts. It goes right into the property market. So there's been a big problem here. Just uh, annual sales of final residential property alone are like 14% of GDP, right? And I, and for those of you who you know don't have comparative numbers in other economies, this is massive. This is enormous. For comparison, in 2018, real estate construction contributed to 6.2% of US gross domestic product according to the Balance website. The precipitous falls in China's housing market have led the central government to pressure banks to finance construction companies, whether they're able to repay or not, so they can complete projects. Local governments have been dragged into the crisis. Land sales make up around a third of local government budgets. But Anderson says the situation is not as cataclysmic for local governments that some have made out. The whole local government issue is a bit misconstrued and misunderstood. The reality is the, the, the net exposure is actually a good bit less, right? Because once a, when a local government uh, sells a land and land use rights to a developer, a significant share of the uh, funds received are then used to undertake resettlement, clearance, and compensation uh, to those who were on the land before. Anderson says the net impact on local government budgets is actually more like 9%. It is clearly a part of the weak economy that we see today in China. But uh, for those who are saying that, you know, local governments all across China are suddenly be going, you know, will be declaring default and there's this massive payments and, and uh, Minsky crisis coming. That's uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But that doesn't mean that there isn't systemic risk. As well as banks being forced to lend to potentially undesirable businesses, the central government is also doing what it can to prop up an ailing real estate market which means the central government's fortunes is tied to that of the housing market. When property goes into a downturn as it is today, and it's been a very uh, you know, real and painful downturn, uh, the central government is forced to do all manner of uh, adjustments and stimulus and subsidies in order to keep things going. You can't just let this thing you know, die. That's a very, very tough assignment in today's Chinese environment. An assignment made tougher if the government is trying to rebalance the economy away from investment and more towards consumption. This kind of obsessive focus on property and property-related investment, it's a huge part of the economy. It's become very, very big. And uh, at some point, it, it needs to come back down. And the idea is, of course, that we need to get people spending more on other areas, right? We want people to consume uh, we want people to spend on goods, uh, non-durable goods. We want them to spend on services. Today, it's suddenly a big issue because, you know, when we say spend on services, spend on travel, spend on education, spend on entertainment, right now, no one can do any of that, right? Because of zero COVID restrictions. People aren't traveling. They're not going out and, and you know, hitting the restaurants and the bars and the shops. People are very um, cautious, uh, constraints everywhere. It's a delicate situation. 
There have been reports President Xi is considering loosening COVID restrictions, but the country's doctors have warned that China's healthcare system is not prepared to deal with a huge nationwide coronavirus outbreak that will inevitably follow any easing of strict measures to contain COVID-19. Here we are nine months into, you know, Omicron and nine months into the wave that kind of took everyone else down and China is still grinding it out and fighting it. And so, you know, it's it's that still may happen, but that's not likely to be, at least in the near term, what causes China to rethink and go to the exit. Uh, if that's not the case, and the only other thing that's going to really convince China to give up and, you know, sort of wrenchingly change tack is if, you know, Mr. Xi himself and, you know, the small number of senior leaders who are really the ones who pull the trigger on this investment, um, really have convinced themselves that this is no longer a dangerous virus, that, you know, the costs in terms of health in China would be very manageable, that it's, you know, little more than a flu, that you can, you know, ha tackle this with the uh, vaccination profile that you have. And in China's case, it's not super impressive, right? They still have a large number of unvaccinated elderly over the age of 75. Uh, they, you know, have really not done a great job on, on pushing vaccines through the entire population. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash investor download. The ruling party's focus on containing COVID has come at the same time as a regulatory crackdown, which has affected sectors such as technology and education. That's been seen as a pivot after years of pro-business reforms, providing another stumbling block for growth. Unlike previous generations of leadership in China in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, right, people like uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, senior leaders and, and, you know, the party structure was focused like a laser on growth. Mr. Xi and the current party structure are very, very different, right? They are not uh, pro-growth animals at all costs. They have a very different agenda. That ad agenda is focused on domestic uh, governance, putting the party back in the primacy of the economy. They're focused on data security. They're focused on geopolitics and reducing China's exposure to foreign interests and foreign influence. And as a result, uh, what you've seen in the last number of years is just bringing uh, the rest of the economy essentially into line with all of these other parts of the agenda. For the tech sector, that means reversing and cutting off many external influences, funding and listing exposures. It means reducing foreigners' access to data. In many cases, that means fines and changing the way they operate. It also puts off potential investors, particularly foreign investors, from injecting finance into the economy. So again, uh, you know, this is clearly negative for the economy and negative for growth. To reiterate the point, it's not a war on business per se, right? So, you know, most people will not be affected at the end of the day. But uh, the message nonetheless is being made perfectly clear. You know, we don't care about you, right? If you are a business, as long as you're not coming up against something we care about, you're fine. But heaven help you if you do come up against something we care about, because, you know, the fact that you're a productive contributing member to GDP is not going to save you, right? Because GDP is no longer our, our main priority. Our main priority is all of these other things. The change in direction for the Chinese economy has rubbed the West up the wrong way 
fracturing their already fragile relationship. From trade wars to Xi's close relationship with Putin, the West has become disenfranchised with China. Where we've been over the last six years, seven years, is, you know, these various parts of the world locked in this ever-spiraling vicious circle, right? Where, you know, one side uh, takes additional measures and, you know, heightens its sense of of, of fear and, and, you know, the other side uh, ramp, you know, responds to that and, and takes it up another notch, right? And so on the military front, on the tech security front, on the, you know, uh, data security front, and, you know, everywhere, right? You've just seen this spiral of uh, mutual recrimination, mutual hostility, uh, you know, various measures being taken. It doesn't help the fact that China now is, you know, a very closed economy. It's closed its borders. It's, you know, completely inwardly focused on this COVID campaign. And, and that's helped it, uh, you know, ag- aggressively put up walls in, in many areas from, you know, information to education to ed- entertainment, you know, just completely, you know, uh, sidelining any foreign influences and any foreign uh, uh, investment opportunities, right? I mean, you really have a closing of the economic model now in China and, uh, you know, a closing of doors in the Western Europe as well. The sentiment from the most recent G20 meeting appeared to be more of a conciliatory tone at least on the surface. The US and China said that whilst they were still fiercely competitive, they'd work closer together on trade and climate change. But it doesn't change the fact that the world is facing up to a future where China may no longer be the engine for global growth. Households are, are, uh, you know, in in disarray. Uh, Sentiment is weak there. Businesses in disarray and sentiment is weak there. And the longer you stay in this zero COVID, closed model with impaired balance sheets, you know, the harder it is to get things moving at the end of the day, right? Now, mind you, uh, if and when China does reopen, and China will reopen at some point, if not in 2023, then, you know, 2024, uh, it will certainly have the best GDP year of its history, right, as as China comes back online. So, you know, you're going to have a fantastic reopening period where people start traveling again and where you start, uh, you know, seeing people going back to restaurants and back to shops and retail spending goes up. And, uh, you know, so there is a, a still a great reopening uh, party to be had, but very short lived. And after that, uh, one worries a lot that uh, all of the various impairments, political, economic, geopolitical, are going to weigh on Chinese growth uh, in the second half of the decade. And so, you know, we're not very excited about where China goes now. It's not going to be an absolute disaster, but it's going to be tough all around, I think, for for the mainland as we you know make our way out of all of these various constraints. Here's what else investors are talking about. Five years ago, portfolio manager Ben Forster wouldn't have envisaged himself on a plane to Iceland in the name of equity research. Yet recently, that's exactly where he found himself on the way to finding out how the country is helping sate the global appetite for digital content on demand. You can read all about Ben's trip in his article, Iceland, the land of fire, ice and digital infrastructure. 
by visiting schroders.com forward slash insights, where you can also watch a short video on his expedition. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products, or to adopt any investment strategy.